Hey y'all, welcome back to But Not All at Once, the podcast for anyone who unironically has a vanilla scented Bonnie Bell lip smacker in her hoodie pocket right now. Um, I'm not even sure that they're still called Bonnie Bell, actually. I think that's probably a tell of being a teenager in the late 1900s, if you will. But whether you have heard of this delightful high end lip care product or, um, you know, never stopped purchasing them, I welcome you. This is a podcast for people who have thoughts and opinions, but sometimes those thoughts and opinions fight one another. Your remaining two brain cells in the colander, that is the gray matter in your head, um, just are duking it out based on headlines and opinions and feelings, and you find yourself untangling the middle ground where your own experiences and viewpoints and issues that you might still be unpacking color your perception of parasocial relationships like those with first ladies and Taylor Swift like celebrities of the world and news stories that in our 24 hour news cycle, wherein the cover of every newspaper is in your palm at all hours of the day and night requires both your consumption and your contribution, which isn't just reading it. It's also feeding into the narrative. If you aren't familiar with me, I am someone who was born in England a hot second ago, again, in that late 20th century, according to history books. I am a royal watcher, not only because of the dual citizenship that made me feel strangely and ridiculously connected to the British royal family, but also because of my age and generation. That's right, the lip smackers era, if you will. I am the same age as Prince Harry's bride as Prince William's bride. I am someone who felt a kinship watching them grow up, not only because William with his thick blonde head of hair, RIP, was on the walls of many of my college classmates, but also because we grew up in the same world. And while we were growing up, we went through, although the individual details were quite different, some of the same things. The figuring out who you are, the tricky family members, people misinterpreting you, feeling like the underdog, even if you have quite the comfortable existence. No, my family did not have multiple country estates, but in that grunge, flannel, um, angry rock era of our youth, didn't everyone feel a bit misunderstood? Was that just me? You can DM me about that later. Wherever you came from, whether this is your very first episode or your hundred and something. I am delighted that you're here. If you haven't heard the first episode, breaking down episodes one through three of Harry and Meghan's Netflix docuseries, I would encourage you to find the link in the show notes and skedaddle on back there. Skedaddle is one of the words that I use with my four children when I'm trying to be both upbeat and firm. So, hey, I'm still doing this thing. Could you skedaddle out of the kitchen? Oops. Yeah, let's move it on down the road. Come on. Shoo, shoo, shoo. I don't actually say shoe, but somehow skedaddle feels nicer than what I'm occasionally tempted to say, which is, oh, this is the 15th time. Get out. Yes. Gentle parenting is easier to do in your colander of a mind than in the real world, especially when your children are not always gentle childrening. So welcome. This is But Not All at Once. We don't always focus on royal things. We focus on people and their stories. But it turns out in some breaking news, royal people 
our people too. So let's dive in to the second and slightly more revealing portion of Harry and Meghan's docuseries with a few brief pit stops on some surprising and important royal headlines that have popped up in the last month. The reason that this second part of our breakdown kept being pushed back. Honestly, I thought the headlines would slow, which is adorable because as we got closer to Spare's release, they only picked up and there is a lot to unpack. I thought we would do a few mini episodes as I work my way through the memoir, but guys, (laughs) I'm completely captivated. My very first Audible book. I'm sometimes reading physically, sometimes reading just with my ears and really drawn into the narrative from both a PR and messaging strategy perspective, and also from a journalism school thought process of, wait, why wasn't this through line included in any of the headlines? Why wasn't this what was tapped into? Surely these two sentences are not all that The Sun or The Daily Mail or name the influencer who railed about the memoir before its release were referencing. So there's a lot to talk about, and we're going to try to keep my voice this time around because last night I spoke on this matter for 100 full metric minutes. That recording, I'm sure, was far more rambly than this one is going to be, if you can believe it. And it's going to go on Patreon where folks hopefully are a little more patient and loving in a tighter little circle, and also where I haven't been able to drop a new episode since uh, my sabbatical. So I'm delighted to be back in all manners of the word, and I think we should probably dive right in. I doubt it will surprise anyone to know that I am in fact a verbal processor. When any life event happens, whether it's something in my own life or something on a national or global scale that I'm trying to work out, it's not until I give literal voice to it. I don't just mean texting. I'd love to put pen to paper, but even that doesn't do the trick for me. Speaking to another human, bouncing it off of them, getting their nonverbal feedback, hearing their thoughts, and honestly, just letting the words tumble out and kind of molding my thought processes as they do is an absolutely pivotal, and I would say sometimes the only thing I can do to make sense of what's swirling around uh, in my chest, in my head, in the world. And so last night, I indulged in, I think it's 102 delicious minutes of verbal processing, (laughs) one way, preaching to the choir, probably. So today, to slim that down, I just want to give you less of a caveat and more of a prologue, which if you heard our first episode on the docuseries, it'll make sense to you. You understand the perspective that I'm coming from, but I've given a bit more thought to this in light of the intense media coverage of Prince Harry's book and to his, um, what I thought was originally going to be just two interviews, but I think ended up being maybe four. Uh, He was with Anderson Cooper And Tom Bradby on Sunday, obviously recorded long before, Americans theoretically aren't able to access Tom Bradby's ITV episode, but you can access the transcript or if you're smart enough to use VPN and alter your IP address and tell Beyonce's internet that you're not coming from America. I don't know. You can access it some other way. Um, Anderson Cooper's was fascinating, far different than the docuseries, which 
although it was made by an Oscar-nominated filmmaker, was a film with a creative direction that wasn't Harry and Meghan's, but it wasn't journalism. There was no pushback, follow-up questions. You don't hear the literal or figurative voice of the person posing the interview questions. So we had Anderson, we had Tom, then we had Michael Strahan on Good Morning America. I think CBS got some kind of exclusive here. Uh, Stephen Colbert, and there may have been one more mixed in there, but not an extensive world tour um, where you would see most people who aren't political or royal figures probably stopping at the equivalent of like the malls that New Kids on the Block used to go to that NSYNC started in in Florida. Uh, Just buy my book. I'll sign it. Oh my gosh, come on. There was none of that. And still, I think that Harry outpaced even former President Barack Obama from something like, I think President Obama sold like 900,000 copies of his memoir in the first day. I think between the United Kingdom and the United States, we're currently at 1.2 million in all formats. Um, It's a lot. It's a lot. And people who are just virulent, vehement, anti-Sussex folks might think about talking about him less, because honestly, it just seems to fuel not only his content creation, but also his sales. So something to keep in mind that perspective shift I wanted to walk you through. Whether like me, you took years studying communications theory and examining not just what words mean, but how we perceive them, the connotations, the denotations, the gap that can sometimes happen between what you're saying and what people are receiving, which is one of not only the most challenging parts of my job, but maybe the most challenging part of humaning of being a person for me individually. I am passionate about words. It is kind of my one thing. Um, I'm terribly careful about, in particular, what I put into writing, the sheer volume of words that comes out of my mouth. I I can only control so much. Um, Hopefully folks know that everything is said with wonderful intentions and a good heart, but I I can't control this mouth. Um, But what I write, I mean... And I'm pretty careful about it. So when folks don't understand me, or worse, when they mischaracterize what I say, uh, my Enneagram one tendency to get angry and then pretend I'm not angry, uh, stuff it down and just say I'm disappointed or frustrated, that really kicks into high gear. And it can make me a bit petulant, a bit resentful. Nothing, nothing super cute and attractive. Not my best qualities. But I'm finding as I'm consuming so much from multiple perspectives about this royal story, uh, almost sociological study, I'm finding that what we see in stories and other people's stories in particular tells us a lot about what we see, value, appreciate, loathe in ourselves. I started this podcast in 2019 because I'd been through some capital S stuff. And suddenly small talk, meaningless talk felt even more meaningless than before. I realized that everyone in the room carried something heavy, had been through something hard. The shiniest, most perfect person who intimidated the actual pants off of me had a story. And if I could get to that, and when I did get to that, um, they weren't so intimidating. We weren't so different. 
And even if I disagreed with them, as I did uh, just moments ago with a dear, dear friend about a pretty prominent influencer slash uh, political person whose cause I will never champion, whose content I do not consume, we agree to disagree. My opinions on all manner of things evolve. I think that's a gift. I was just talking to my 13-year-old about it. He asked why I don't touch on certain political or religious topics on the podcast very much. And it's for a couple of reasons. I don't want to be the mouthpiece for something I can't always do justice to. And I also want to leave room for growth. In the years since I've had this podcast, there are things I wouldn't say. There are opinions I no longer hold. Life has dealt us cards that have changed my experiences and my perspective. And I don't want to be on record saying things that you know, might evolve, might soften, might sharpen over time. So everybody has a story, no matter how much we think we know them, know everything about them, someone we've even known our whole life. I've thought before sitting on a sofa with my husband, um, Bradley, I've thought, you know, if someone was writing our biography, there would be no way for them to know who we are in sort of this resting state in our comfy clothes, being really dumb, making inside jokes that make no sense to anyone. No one can really capture that, know that. Even if you have servants like right outside the doors, the queen would, there's a letting down of the guard, of the moat, of your protection that that happens that other people can never fully capture. So I've gone into all of this understanding that Harry is a soldier who was trained to compartmentalizes feelings and act strategically. Um, Megan is an actress who was trained to understand she's being watched and putting on a performance. Not all the time. I'm not someone who believes, I think it'd be far too exhausting, and that there's a light in a person's eyes that would go out after a while trying to portray a character 24-7. But these are people who are telling their story in their words, but they're sharing the information they care to share. My perspective on this is going back to their humanity. Who gets the right to tell their own life story? I would say everyone, right? Everyone owns what's happened to them. There are pretty significant things about my life, pretty hard and emotional things that I've shared here. Scary, mostly since the last decade, since um, parenting and moments of emergency surgery and miscarriage and hurt and NICU stays and bed rest and fear. And that's intensely personal. But there's stuff that we're tiptoeing towards on Patreon um, that I haven't talked about because in my own experience, it wasn't really received that well, even by people who knew me. And being understood is paramount as a talker, a communicator. I understand the desire to tell your truth, to borrow a Californian term, And I think everybody gets to. Sometimes my truth, if you had a documentary camera filming over my shoulder, isn't going to line up with the footage. Not because I'm trying to deceive you, but I don't remember the color of the cup that I was holding when I got the call that my grandfather had passed. Um, Maybe the order of the nurses who came in to fill me in on the details while my daughter's insides were out. Uh, of her little seven pound body on a 
OR table. Maybe I would get that detail wrong. I know how it felt. I know the truth of that. And that's given me um, just a more gracious perspective. I do try to take a lot of sources, news sources and otherwise, with a grain of salt on every side. I think that's important. But understanding whom we really know and what parts of them we really know is critical. People finding ways to say things like, Diana would be appalled by this. Um, I don't I don't know that we know Diana, guys. Not only did she pass away before I was, you know, legally an adult, but she also portrayed a person. She served a purpose in the public eye and was a very different entity in private, as I think most of us would be. So it seems like, to borrow a Southern grandmother's term, it would behoove us to listen to folks telling their own side of the story. And also understanding that a couple of narratives can all feel true to the parties telling them, even if they don't align. We really, the crux of all of this for me is, um, yes, I wear my heart on my sleeve. Yes, I'm a bit more sensitive than most, um, highly sensitive even, a person who has cheered for the underdog since she was too tiny to know otherwise. But I think it's really critical to ask what any human being is owed. And by that, I mean, I've spent my career crafting either stories as a writer for publication, crafting a client's narrative to express to the world through journalism or through social media, which is kind of your own megaphone. And seeing that there's a storytelling element of everything. There's a hook in everything from songs to news stories to Instagram captions. Understanding that we have that in common, a desire to be hooked, to be uh, engaged, to feel a part of a story, but that there are people behind it. And what are those people owed? Um, Safety, connection, care, general human basic rights. Harry and Meghan, for instance, are not owed access to country estates for months at a time if their family or friends don't want to offer that to them. Are they owed the ability to feel safe in their own home, wherever that may be, the chance to retain boundaries, privacy where they would like it? What is any woman, new mother, um, wife, individual walking this planet, what are they owed? How do we feel when we see video of Kate Middleton at the time, you know, in her early 20s, and Princess Diana stalked by paparazzi, being yelled at, being goaded? How do we feel when we see a famous actor's children being papped on the beaches? What is our gut reaction? And what do we find a human is owed? And where is the line where we need to look away? For instance, there are political commentators who I find so loathsome that I don't consume their content. I don't listen to the podcasts. I don't read their columns, which are not news, are opinions. I don't support their numbers. Um, But there are things that I am culpable uh, for, of, And I want to walk us through some of those because although we rail against 
paparazzi as kind of an entity, as a block, we have to recognize that supply and demand is a thing. And that other humans, there's not a subset of, you know, purely evil people who just want to steal the privacy and safety and well-being. No, it's it's not that cut and dried. It's Anne in journalism school. In grad school, giddy to see her Us Weekly arrive in the mailbox every week. You may, for instance, not want to subscribe to a tabloid magazine. Um, you may, like me, no longer read Perez Hilton because, ew, this just, the world is different. The way we talk, the way we think, it, it's all different now. And yet, we still have to acknowledge that our curiosity, our presence online, the cookies that track us, that bring dollars to nasty words, nasty thoughts, or on the other hand, if you can't stand the sight of Harry and Meghan and just think they're ungrateful brats, if you're commenting, ugh, I hate these two, oh, I couldn't care less, please get them off the front page, you're, you're still engaging. If you're clicking on links, if you're present online, unless again, you're one of those whizzes who can tell Beyonce and Al Gore's internet that you don't exist, you're not reading, um, you're buying into that in some way. So I can hear that paparazzi were in the tunnel with Princess Diana and that the images seized from their cameras show that they offered no aid, no comfort, no help, that they never stopped clicking their cameras, even when it was clear that she was semi-conscious at best. And I can think that's disgusting. Who would do that? What kind of subhuman piece of garbage could not look at another human being, regardless of who they were, and want to help? How is it not involuntary? And yet I have to acknowledge that I, I mean, with my babysitting money, bought plenty of People magazine talking about Princess Diana's revenge dress, talking about her glamorous vacations to Saint-Tropez. In some small way, we contribute to this culture. So whether you're railing against one side or the other, you fall squarely in the middle. I think it's a worthwhile point for all of us to have a smidge of self-awareness in the hopes that the the shift we've seen since the aughts, the idea that, for instance, you can't just talk about a 16-year-old pop star's breasts on national TV or ask teenage actresses if they're virgins, maybe that unthinkable thing. For me as a child, it was learning that people used to smoke on airplanes. Just what? How how would anyone expose their peers in a metal tube with recirculated air to their nasty cancer sticks? I want it to be that unthinkable that people were hounded and treated inhumanely. But first, we've got to examine uh, where our appetite, sometimes we will call it a search for truth, wanting to know the real story where our appetite oversteps the boundaries of what it means to be human, what our culture looks like, what we're owed, uh, which in general is nothing, again, because our tax dollars don't support these people. Because this is a late night episode, you're going to hear me shifting around so that I'm essentially doing floor yoga, getting comfortable, not going to sleep in any of my appendages. And you'll also hear me guzzling a little um, lemon water because... I am trying to hit a gallon, you guys, because I'm kind of a better person than you. Um, call me Bella Hadid. 
but also I will lose my voice because I've been talking about this uh, for a hot second. So let's get into with that perspective of, hey, we're all humans. I know how mad a bunch of you are about this entire storyline. You're in my DMs about it, often asking me questions that I don't have answers to you because I'm not a psychic. I could share my opinion, but it would still just be an opinion in the same way that some of my very, very best friends in the world, sometimes their motivations are confusing to me. Um, one of them told me when I was 22, she was the first person who'd ever introduced the concept to me that she believed the things we criticize in others, the insults we hurl at them, whether we say them aloud or not, are often things uh, we're insecure about in ourselves. Whether it's the length of a girl's skirt, which at that time was a very hot topic, um, how she spends her free time, her money, and that really secure people are just not that bothered. Having never been a particularly secure person, and certainly not at that point in my life, it kind of floored me, um, nailed me to the wall a bit. And I feel a bit of that as I scroll headlines. So I'm going to go to my handy dandy notebook. And by that, I mean this Microsoft Word document I made my way through yesterday. If you could see this document, which is, okay, it's 23 pages, 7,500 words between all six episodes of the docuseries, initial thoughts about Spare, about the coverage, um, and then just these, it would be like peering inside my brain, inside that colander. The My writing process is... Um, just peak ADHD for any paid piece. It comes together beautifully. I typically stay up really late at night. It comes together. I wake up terrified. There's no way that could have been good. And I reread it and think, oh, okay. (laughs) Somehow we pulled, we pulled one out. So I'm going to go through this. And if it feels a little disjointed, just imagine what it sounded like last night. Um, Again, re-listen to last month's episode, breaking down the first three episodes if you need to. We're going to skate by some of the details uh, with a little less depth because I want to make sure that we have time to get the fuller overall theme. What, if they were my clients, I would tell them to do next. How I perceive the effectiveness of their communication as my dad used to tell me when I was a pouty teenager. Uh, yeah, actually, I'm pr- probably pouty a lot, but perception is reality. I think one time I had, he said, you just threw that jacket down when I asked you to put it away. And I said, with a complete straight face and absolute seriousness, I didn't throw it down that. I said it like gently. His point was, it looks like you don't care. You just toss this brand new thing on the floor. Um, my thought was very literal, but the perception that people have when you're putting your message out there is more important even than what you're saying. Because a disconnect in the recipient says you're not doing something right. Perhaps you're literally explaining it word for word in a wonderful way, but picture yourself, and at this I'm speaking to the Sussexes and the palace, something like a doctor talking to a traumatized uh, spouse. Your husband was in a car accident You're not going to throw jargon. Uh, You're not going to throw acronyms. You're not going to throw terribly specific medical terms at them. You're going to give just broad strokes. You're going to make it easy to digest for someone who is a layman. If there's a disconnect and they're confused, it's because you need to tighten up your messaging. And as a gal who's really never uh, tightened up her word count, unless 
This little word count button on Word yells at me and says, hey, babe, you're only being paid for 1,500 words, so tighten it up. Um, I understand that that's frustrating, and yet it's true. You can have the side of truth. You can have um, accuracy on your side, and you can speak with just incisive clarity. But if it's not received that way, then you need to examine why. There are a few headlines that colored for me because they began to come out at the same time mid-December as the second batch of docu-series episodes that really shifted things. If you've watched these six docu-series episodes, you're going to hear not just the tap that I just gave the microphone, but you're going to hear a lot of talk about the symbiotic relationship between the Royal Institution and the British tabloids. You're going to hear how stories are built, concocted sometimes, how they're run by the royals. Um, You're going to hear that, in fact, the royal family views themselves as far more powerless than you and I might imagine when it comes to what's printed about them. Uh, They are sort of trying to save up their social capital for truly crisis-level stories that they want to... um, halt, kill, twist. It's not unlike a, you know, Hollywood manager who's got everyone from Brad Pitt to a brand new 12-year-old guest starring on a soap opera on their roster. They might trade a story about a burgeoning young actress to cover for their most established talent. It's no different in the in the British royal family. So the fact that some of these headlines came out last month surprised me. And it said, that something was going on, something was a Bruin. Um, my opinions about Harry and Meghan were very positive after watching the docu-series. The coverage around Spare, around its leak, and a bit around his promo interviews flip-flopped some of my opinions. And listening to the book in Harry's own voice has shifted some of it back and that things I feel were important from the book, the text that I wanted to highlight and dive into, that's not what has been amplified in the press. So um, if you think I seem a little scattered and a little ping-pongy, for lack of a better phrase, imagine what it's like for me. Um, The headlines that I want to talk about specifically, some of them are not new. Prince Andrew's security still being paid for by the British royal family. That became a hot button item because, as we all know, whether you've watched the docuseries or not, Prince Harry's security is not covered by the British royal family. That's a tricky area, right? Um, Folks said, who would deign to believe that their security is going to be covered when they're no longer full-time senior working royals? Well, uh, neither is Andrew, right? So... We need to have that caveat in there. Also, Harry's never been accused of pedophilia or cavorting with uh, he who shall not be named. So, yes, that's all we're going to say about Andrew. His inclusion at Christmas, which the, you know, traditional walk on Christmas morning from Sandringham to the local church has um, broadened a bit because the bench just isn't as deep for senior royals. So, for instance, a Princess Beatrice's stepson, Wolfie. I'm not sure exactly how old he is, her husband's son from a previous relationship, but he looks like he's in elementary school. 
he was at the walk, hopefully wanted to be, certainly drew some goodwill, some um, headlines, but her father was there too, in a way that just, like, why? why? Why are we still doing this? I'm not saying he shouldn't be allowed to go to church at Christmas. I'm saying perhaps we don't just trot him out. Like, everything's delightful and completely fine. Nothing to see here. Um, no multi-million dollar settlements uh, covered by his mama for unspeakable things. <sighs> Prince William's godmother, Lady Susan Hesse, who I caught, actually, the this is the only season of The Crown I've ever not binge-watched, because I just didn't find it that engaging. I'm hoping the next season, as beautiful as they all are to watch, is as engaging as um, it once was. They've got college-aged Will and Kate cast, so I'm very hopeful. But I saw her and her husband, or their actors playing them, and just my ears perked up because I had heard of this woman for the first time. She was a lady-in-waiting to the Queen. Her husband's, if you've seen The Crown, very involved in um, British press and publishing, also royal family, politics, uh, PR. And she was playing hostess uh, alongside... Uh, Camilla, queen consort. And by hostess, I mean, you know, this isn't a garden party with 50,000 people and that the queen would hold on the, the lawn in the spring. This is a smaller gathering before the holidays at Buckingham Palace for philanthropies, typically ones who fall under the umbrellas of what Camilla loves to support, particularly gender-based violence and women's causes, which is tremendous. I love that for her. And Lady Susan was speaking to a Black woman who runs a charity that works specifically with Black women and did something that I'm sure many women of color have lived with before, which is, where are you from? No, where are you really from? No, where are your parents really from? The touching of the hair, the just, it's kind of a tale as old as time in terms of complete racial insensitivity. And at the most basic level, uh, a lack of being a hostess, which requires an emotional and social IQ that picks up on if your guests are at ease, comfortable, have the opportunity to celebrate their work. You know that when a person goes into a palace, this is a story that lasts generations. Wouldn't you say, oh, my grandfather was invited to a state dinner by, you know, FDR, whatever the case may be. This is something that lasts forever. For Lady Susan, it might just be a regular day up to Cam's house and have some watercress sandwiches. But this is a woman who made a guest of color feel tremendously uncomfortable, was at best classist, uh, unconsciously biased and insensitive, and at worst, just openly racist and a terrible hostess to boot. I don't imagine that... Her particular opinions should be tied to the royal family, including Prince William. He's not responsible for his godfather. But um, it was certainly a story that indicates the truth about all of us, which is that we we all have areas, blind spots to work on. And this was a place where the palace could have leaned in to that narrative of um, educating, informing, and being an example it was a mess. Um, interestingly, and we'll discuss this in the breakdown of the spare memoir, but Harry has spoken about her during his promo tour and has said that he and Megan love her, that she's a great woman. And he does talk, touch on um, unconscious bias in that circle, in the royal family. 
some of the things he says about unconscious bias versus racism in that tour are puzzling to me. But again, we'll we'll unpack that later. Something as a writer, as a talker, um, and as someone who has studied enough about propaganda, misinformation, disinformation, um, with folks, professors far smarter than I am, understands the power of words. I'm someone who knows that words aren't just words. We all heard sticks and stones can break my bones, blah, blah, blah. That's not true. It's just (laughs) words aren't just words. I can quote to you some of the most hurtful things ever said to me, the most dismissive things, um, the most wonderful things that I replay when I can't think wonderful things about myself. And uh, Jeremy Clarkson, who's just a not exactly a stellar stand-up guy, wrote something truly horrendous uh, about Megan. And um, I'm going to try to find the quote, actually, because I don't want to, I don't want to overstep, I don't want to overstate this, but um, it was incredibly hurtful and totally inappropriate. Um, It's just... It's just beyond. You're going to hear me searching for this because reading it and even hearing Harry respond to it a bit on his promo tour, I was looking for like a telltale clenching of the jaw or a look that said, I want to kick this man squarely in the throat, but I I didn't see it. So, um, you know, Jeremy Clarkson wrote, and you may have watched Game of Thrones. I have not, but I'm aware enough to understand there's some meme where some woman is paraded through the street undressed. So much like Kira Knightley says in Pride and Prejudice, and by that I mean Elizabeth Bennett, she says, look, you have insulted me in, in every way a person can be insulted and can therefore have nothing left to say to me. So I must ask you to leave. That's how I feel about this piece. Jeremy Clarkson insults Meghan Markle in a way that is so above and beyond. She seems a little self-centered. I think she's an actress and, you know, really just wants attention. It's so gross at the most basic level that you can probably hear my voice tightening. So this is one tiny portion. We all know in our heart of hearts that Harold Markle, BTW, that's Prince Harry of Wales, is a slightly dim but fun-loving chin who flew Apache helicopter gunships in Afghanistan and cavorted around a Las Vegas hotel room with naked hookers. But then along came Megan, who obviously used some vivid bedroom promises to turn him into a warrior of woke. And now it seems that she has her arms so far up his bottom, she can use her fingers to alter his facial expressions. I actually feel rather sorry for him, because today he's just a glove puppet, with no more control over what he says or does than Basil Brush. I'm using the British pronunciation of Basil because I don't know who that is. Megan, though, is a different story. I hate her. Not like I hate Nicholas Sturgeon or Rose West. This is a political figure. And Rose West will address in a moment. I hate her on a cellular level. At night, I'm unable to sleep as I lie there, grinding my teeth and dreaming of the day when she is made to parade naked through the streets of every town in Britain while the crowds chant, shame, and throw lumps of excrement at her. Everyone who's my age thinks the same way. First of all, I worry about anyone who devotes that much time, energy, and rage uh, towards a public figure, presumably one they haven't met, and certainly one they will never know well. You 
are unable to sleep? You hate her? Do you know what the word hate means? I hate her. Not like I hate this political figure or Rose West. I want to be really clear. So I googled it before we started talking. Um, Rose West is a woman who was convicted of being an English serial killer. She tortured and murdered at least nine young women alongside her husband and murdered her eight-year-old stepdaughter. To hear the name of any other woman who has done something less than harm a child, in that sentence, absolutely flummoxes, befuddles, astounds, sickens, boggles the mind of reasonable folks. If you don't believe that that is gender-based rage, (sighs) okay, no one responded, okay, boomer. People either cheered or eviscerated him online. And eventually, after quite some time, I should say, the son took the story down, noting that he had asked them to. If that's not appalling enough, both Pierce Morgan, a jackleg to Megan, who has spoken about her as though she owes him dinner, drinks, dancing, attention, um, and this man, Jeremy Clarkson, were with Camilla, invited to a small, intimate press gathering at Buckingham Palace for Christmas. Neither of these men have made a secret of their hatred of Meghan. And whether the royal family considers Meghan uh, the Yoko Ono, and by the way, with apologies to Yoko, because we know that grown men are capable of making their own decisions, uh, the Yoko Ono of Harry's story, the Wallace Simpson, if you will, um, she is still one of them under their umbrella. Uh, as much as she's far more, actually, than she's under my umbrella. We were born days apart college-educated American women with hearts, beating hearts, um, who, to my knowledge, have not tortured and killed multiple people. Words, if you haven't read How Fascism Works, um, they form our opinions, our viewpoints, which then shape how we speak about people and treat people. Words can incite violence, and in fact have. And if you don't believe me, I encourage you to study Um, global history in the 20s, 30s, and 40s, the role of anti-Semitism and propaganda, um, the positive role of propaganda that our country has used in many a war, (laughs) including um, the size of condoms dropped overhead over the enemy to make them feel small, literally and figuratively. Uh, There there is much more than a word. The sticks and stones thing were, were far beyond that. And the silence of the British royal family was very telling there, because this is a person who falls under their umbrella. This is the mother of their relatives. This is, we should all be equally disgusted by that. Um, So again, going back to that perspective, I led off with, we need to ask ourselves what humans deserve, what rights they have, and does a woman not have a right to not have someone speak about her that way. Um, mm, mm, mm. This is actually going to end up being just as long and windy as yesterday's episode, isn't it? Okay. You can listen to both, Patreon and this, and just get 
all the royal, all the royal ramblings. But I, um, I can hear in my own reaction to this, my ties to that feeling. I dated someone for a long time. And when we broke up, the narrative that was shared was absolute bollocks, as Harry has probably said in my earbuds today, um, complete and total lies. I think the date of our breakup was shifted by like six to nine months. Um, horrible things that my friends had even seen in person happened, seemed to be forgotten. Folks tailgated with this guy, um, which if you're not from the South, is like, I don't know. I find tailgating to be just this sweet little sacred ritual for your nearest and dearest, even if it's a big crowd of them, um, taking tickets just because someone has a cool spot to hang out before a football game is disappointing. But I felt um, misunderstood. I felt hurt. And um, I felt like a lot of the things that were said about me and then eventually about the man who became my husband and the father to all four of my children. As far as he knows, Bradley loves jokes like that. Um, I, I found it incredibly sexist and hurtful and unnecessary, especially because that person had uh, a ton of issues that were just projected upon me. Um, by the way, we do have a counselor who's going to be talking about toxic people, boundaries, and narcissistic abuse in the future. Not saying those things are related, but not not saying they're related. Um, so I feel in my Jeremy Clarkson reaction, my hurt from that and my understanding of how critical it is to me to feel understood, to feel seen. Um, if you don't like me, but you see me as I am, then that's, you know, opinion. It's fine. But uh, believing lies is a is a different thing. I found that the back half of the docuseries watched through the lens of these lingering, um, you know, Prince Andrew is included. Prince Andrew is still paid for. Lady Susan Hussey is, you know, spoken about in some ways defended. These reporters who've said awful things about your relatives, drawn into the fold and celebrated with champagne and all manner of baked goods. And yet, what do we believe that Prince Harry and, and Meghan deserve? Um, it's a lot a lot of questions. I found the last three episodes of the docuseries to offer less drama than the book, for sure. Nothing like the memoir. Far more emotion and explanation. Uh, as I said earlier, it's, there, it's not real journalism. There's, there are no follow-up questions, no um, pushback, just creative direction. For instance, there's a part that you've probably seen clips of where Prince William texts Harry, and you can see a physical reaction in him of fear, disappointment, hurt. Um, you see Megan rush off the phone with Tyler Perry to comfort him, but we don't see what the what the text was, and a journalist would undoubtedly have asked. Um, no one pushed back and said, hey, what about that fight with Kate, Megan? You mentioned it to Oprah. It's been in the press. It's going to be in Harry's book. When did you last speak to the family specifically? doesn't, those kind of things don't come up. This is what they are willing to parcel out. Um, it's, it's in, it's irrefutable. I've said so many words, I'm running out of them. Um, you can, you cannot dispute, indisputable, that what they're speaking about, their hurt has affected them. 
We know that Megan had suicidal thoughts. We know that there were genuine and legitimized fears for their children's safety. Um, And we know that Harry believes that what was done to Megan by the press contributed to her miscarriage. Whether science backs that up or not, um, I absolutely understand that protective instinct. Um, But what I want to caution all of us against in a current through line that I'm seeing in a lot of coverage is that just because some people in the world cannot pay their bills, do not have what you and I would call human rights, clean air, clean water, safe place to sleep, um, doesn't mean that what's happening to a privileged and literally entitled person isn't wrong. They're apples and oranges. We can want more than one thing to be corrected, to change at one time, right? Um, I do think that they want the world to see their love as a love story. I mentioned it in the first breakdown episode because it's not how Bradley and I would discuss um, our relationship. It's a bit boring. He's an engineer. I think our brains work differently, certainly. But if I had seen my marriage dissected in the press, uh, seen my spouse described the way Megan has been, um, I would probably be a little extra defensive and want people to see, look how close we are. Look at this connection. Look how important and how different and how special this love is, this relationship is. Um, I don't feel that urge because I don't really care. And I don't mean that I don't love you. I love you. I love the community that this group brings. And I love finding folks to talk to anywhere at, at all times. But it's not important to me that you see and understand what I feel about my husband because I know what I feel about my husband and I know how he feels about me. Um, someone said something kind of hurtful to me uh, based on, you know, sort of the less than delightful person that I dated previously, just before Bradley and I got married. And, um, and it really stung me. And I thought, can you imagine feeling entitled uh, or emboldened or welcome to say anything about someone's future spouse for a less than concerning reason? You know, there's no, I'm worried about your safety. I'm worried about your peace of mind. No, this was completely personal opinion based on, um, you know, a guy who didn't admit that I'd broken up with him for a good nine months. So when somebody saw me at a restaurant with a man who later proposed to me, it probably did look like I was cheating, for instance, hypothetically. Um, I can't help you there. And it super stung, but it didn't make me want to send out a press release because I'm not a prince, Um, despite what my parents told me when I was little. Uh, Royal service is such a fascinating thing to me. And in the episode I recorded last night, I honestly probably used the word fascinating 923 times. It's um, instant celebrity from the time of birth. It's a feeling of ownership, even if there isn't a salary attached to it. And before people jump to, well, you know, anyone who gets royal money, they owe public service and access to the people. I would encourage you to look at people like Princess Michael of Kent, who's been benefiting from, I mean, first of all, her name is not, it's Christine, not Michael. She's be like Catherine being Princess William, Meghan being Princess Henry. She's been getting below market rent for decades. Um, her daughter's ex outed her in Vanity Fair for using hard drugs while swimming in the Buckingham Palace pool. Um, 
there, there are all kinds of people. I mean, this is the woman who wore black and wore brooch to a Christmas event where she knew Megan would be in attendance. She also had black labs well before Megan came into the family named Oprah and Serena. That's not made up. So the lens with which we examine this particular couple within that family, um, I do want to calibrate it because they're not drawing public dollars. Um, and yes, they're trying to prove they're in love. I love that. Some of my favorite people um, delight in being married. As Audrey Hepburn said, when I get married, I want to be very married. That's wonderful. A solid, strong family can be a really wonderful foundation for healing, which it's clear, Harry in particular, after a traumatic and singular childhood needed to do. That's a good thing. They're going to raise children who are far more um, emotionally literate than they would have been had they stayed in their previous situation. Seasons of healing after all of this are just critical, something I'm just now realizing myself after years of interviewing people about their hardest moments and then wondering why I need to sleep for 10 hours after those talks. Um, But royal service is so foreign. It's not an elected position like a president where you owe us this. You owe us answers. You are directly affecting us. These are people doing meet and greets. They're doing photo ops. They're wearing sparkly tiaras to state dinners. They aren't exactly changing the world. They can amplify and highlight people who are doing work on the ground. They can shift opinions. For instance, Diana hugging someone who was HIV positive at a time where that wasn't done. Um, There's a feel-good element as well. But it's shrouded in mystery, and it's rooted in this idea that these people are better and separate. Their lives, though, as human beings, aren't remarkable besides their access to, like, everything. Jewels, money, food, famous people, anything they want. They are human beings with complicated family relationships. Some of them don't have great educational backgrounds. Many of them have thwarted dreams, uh, romances they couldn't pursue because it wasn't quote-unquote appropriate. And when we, we sit there and kind of like trying to figure out how to spell the word yogurt or something, and you look at it long enough and it's not even a word anymore. When you think about it, what is all this fuss about? Like, this is bonkers. Um, And the standards seem to shift. There are many royals who have been and done embarrassing things, but they weren't forbidden. Uh, Just late last year, Zara, Princess Anne's daughter, her husband, Mike Tyndall, a former uh, rugby player, did I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, which is like Survivor for Celebrities, I think. It's a reality game show wherein he talked about Buckingham Palace and the royals and the family. Evidently, the royals were delighted and enthused and amused by the whole shebang. Decades before, you can Google it's a royal knockout where both Anne and Prince Edward had teams of celebrities helping them do silly, embarrassing one-day games, raising money for charity. Uh, dignity, not so much. Ratings and attention and headlines, which is a great thing for those charities, yes. So I tried to caution myself and temper other people's opinions by remembering that we have a tendency to regard everything said by someone who grates us as wrong. Picture the last elected official who made you set your teeth on edge. They could have said, you know, I feel like children need more hugs and books read to them. And you'd be like, you freaking idiot. Even if you, I mean, and I hope, 
I hope you believe all children deserve hugs and books read. Um, so it, it's psychologically impossible to disentangle all of those um, preconceived notions and to look at um, history repeating itself, for instance, the really true parallels between Princess Diana and the Sussexes, between the popularity that Diana enjoyed, the jealousy from other royals, kind of the pettiness, perhaps use or non-use of things that you and I wouldn't understand. This uh, sash, this royal order, this order of the garter, this subtitle, subtitle, secondary title. We don't necessarily understand that because we're not entrenched in that world, but there's almost a different lexicon there, a different set of protocol, including the fact that coverage and attention needs to be meted out almost in a line of succession order, which the media handles, not the actual royals, right? Kate can't control it if she pops in a bookshop and someone sees and it bumps Prince Charles's, you know, organic farming story off the front page. And yet we are ready to discount Harry and Meghan's claims of jealousy as, you know, really self-absorbed. The other piece of that is, of course, they're self-absorbed. I mean, it's literally bred into Harry, a kind of se- a lack of self-awareness because he's never been with people for any length of time who haven't had such immense privilege, I can't wrap my brain around it. And much of that is that kind of compartmentalizing and seeing oneself as being presented, you know, is required by Megan's career. I would have to dissociate a little bit on a red carpet, I know that for sure, to imagine that folks are examining me from all angles when I can barely stand in front of a full-length mirror and not have, you know, a little voice in the back of my head. So it it strikes me that there's genuine affection and admiration that seeps out of the couple in their docuseries for the Queen uh, in particular, and also for Charles, when there's still mentions of, you know, these people were disappointed because we were popular, or these people wanted to punish us by not paying for this or not paying for that. And you're thinking, guys, like the cameraman who's holding this lens pointed at you probably makes less in a year than, you know, your trust fund returns in three days. Do you hear what you're saying? Um, No, they don't. It is possible to be both annoying and right sometimes. Okay, you don't have to like Megan and Harry to perceive their message. You don't have to roll your eyes at every valid point, at every security concern of fear. I read someone say, you know, you can be annoying and aggrieved at the same time. And it kind of goes back, I think, to our um, hope for the perfect victim. I'm not calling Harry and Meghan victims here. I'm talking about um, looking for holes in anyone's story when, you know, for instance, someone is assaulted that's terrible on its face. Why are we asking what they drank, what they wore, where they were, what time it was? Why can't we just be enraged on the face? You don't have to check all the boxes to have a point. I'm relieved to see that Harry and Meghan, which seem to be the theme through this love story second half, um, are happy. I was relieved to see that they escaped a Commonwealth country that they would have been stuck in with paparazzi just before lockdown with COVID, that they are no longer hounded as much by the press, 
we all know the harm of, of being stuck in a constant fight or flight and how unsafe that would feel as a child. Um, you know, it, I did find it very telling when Tyler Perry talked about the just elite elite, the top 0.2% of celebrities who lived in his neighborhood who were still stunned by the helicopters and drones and photographers hiding in bushes. Um, you know, one thing, and I'm going to go, because I know I made a note about this earlier today when the thoughts, um, oh, this is supposed to be for our discussion of spare, but, um, why are we more enraged, more upset? Why do we feel like it's more disrespectful for Harry and Meghan to leave England and speak about their experience than we do, for instance, when we talk about the paparazzi who used unbelievably long lenses to catch Princess Kate topless in France on a private vacation years ago? It's absolutely disgusting. An invasion of privacy beyond words. And yet people aren't still talking about that. They didn't rail against it then. It's um, it's important that we do pull these parallels out because it can kind of help us calibrate the scale we're using to judge wrongdoing, to maybe listen to truth, even if we don't like whom it might be coming from. Being a prince is a title that Harry was born to. It's as much part of his identity as my maiden name was mine. If my dad and I cut off all contact, you know, technically my my last name was brought to me through my connection with my father, would I no longer have had the right to use that name, to be that person? Would that no longer be my identity? Um, we'll talk later in the, the spare episode about the relinquishment of titles that Harry offered. We will talk about his mention of it on this promo tour, but there's been no request that Prince Andrew relinquish his titles. Princess Michael. Um, there's been no railing against, you know, Kate Middleton's icky uncle talking about Meghan, name dropping Harry. It's he's still at the wedding because we don't expect Kate to assume the blame for absolutely everything. Are we to lob judgment on everything we, we really don't totally know about? Just having listened to what I've listened to so far of the memoir, I'm kind of stunned by some of the stories I thought were true that just aren't, that I don't think would be really possible or even necessary for Harry to lie about. Um, for instance, Harry giving the ring to William at his request when that happened long before William met Kate. It's um, it's a bit of a mental juggle to understand you can be self-absorbed and mistreated. You can have a personality I don't click with, but have we really examined every wrongdoer in this situation, every paparazzo, every Prince Andrew, Princess Michael, with this same bar. Um, we know hurt people hurt people. I think everyone in this situation is hurt. But the outcry at people expressing their own personal experiences, their own story, not not gleaned through like hacking phones or listening to voicemail, kind of gives me a pause. Um, my particular sore spot is some miscarriage insensitivity. The idea that other people should police for for Megan when and where and how she should talk about her miscarriage, um, picking apart what they believe is the timeline of a miscarriage, saying that, you know, why do you even have to talk about this? And by the way, this is these are still comments I'm seeing currently. Like this week, 
by people on TikTok. So young enough to to work TikTok. We're not talking about 93-year-olds. Um, that hurts me because I didn't know anyone who had spoken openly about their miscarriage when I had one. And my goodness, could I have used it. Harry touches a bit on his wartime revelations on his book promo tour and how he hopes that it can help people in danger of suicidal thoughts after their service feel seen and safe. We'll dissect that later. But I want to go back to the docuseries. Again, it's hard to untangle all of this. But, um, you know, we've learned so much about the couple in the first three episodes, their backstory, their families, how they met. Obviously, Megan did charity work long before Harry came into her life. I didn't super love the I wasn't, you know, pursuing an Oscar-worthy role. I just wanted to do charity. Um, I found that an odd way to talk about it. I would probably have said, you know, it's I'm really passionate about helping women or whatever. Or I might not have said it at all. But that's me. Doesn't mean I have to love Megan. Um, there's a mention of a pilot crouching down and telling Megan as she's on a flight um, back to Canada that... He really appreciates all she gave up. I think he says sacrifice for her country, all she did, or I didn't love that. Um, Michelle Obama, I think, asked when asked about the same thing about Harry and Meghan's exit and discussion of service, said, you know, it's really our job as public figures and public servants to point the light to causes, not ourselves. I think Harry and Meghan would say they want to do that, but it's difficult to be in front of six hours of someone talking about themselves and not find them too much, um, not find them self-absorbed. I loved how at peace Harry looked, how aware he seemed of healing PTSD from uh, serving, of the PTSD from his mother's death, of emotional wounds from his family. I think you're never going to go wrong there. I wish that we could examine the desire to pick apart every criticism Every, you know, how dare you put out a statement, for instance, asking the press to back off of your girlfriend when Kate had to go through the same thing. Well, that I mean, that doesn't make it right. Correct? We're, we're saying it's awful. Are we saying it should be awful till the end of time for everyone? Because I had to suffer? I've been through some junk that I wouldn't wish on anyone. I, I would never want you to to really be able to empathize with what it felt like to know that your newborn might not come home with you. Um, ever. <laughs> I wouldn't wish that for you. And I'm not saying that that's comparable in any way to what these public figures have gone through. But I am saying that a crappy and avoidable experience should be avoided and we should help people do it. My opinion of them, and I think many people's opinions of them, uh, it's really going to be shaped by the next steps for the couple. This has been the truth, but it's it's been their truth. This docu-series has been six hours of controlled, colored truth. Colored in the same way that all our memories are, whether we intend to tell a bit of the story or not. Now they get to live the life they'd like to. They get to set aside kind of the shadow of all these victimhood insults. They get to set aside believing that their story has been misunderstood, misportrayed, misconstrued. You got your truth out there. People are going to hear it and believe it as they see fit. Um, you know, it's a crossroads of a fairy tale, of, of love, of wealth, 
of tiaras and normalcy of parenting and miscarriage and hurt. It's there's something unifying in in this if we can take that away from it. But I I want us to examine this docu series, this couple, like a movie, like a show. You know, we all and I think probably in the last decade as television has really been elevated, we've all rooted for these imperfect anti-heroes. Well, well before Taylor Swift sang about it. Don Draper of Mad Men, Walter White, Breaking Bad, John Dutton, Yellowstone, even our beloved Rory Gilmore. When I rewatch it, I'm like, ooh, girl, you are spoiled and selfish. <laughs> but you look for their motivations, you note their growth, you root for them. Maybe you acknowledge I would never do that morally. Um, maybe you see you're different, but you can't imagine life in their shoes. I've never been like the largest single landholder in all of the United States. And yet there's some element of people that you can relate to if you try. It's the kernel that launched this podcast. We can hope these people do better in ways where they have been failing. We can also change the channel when they don't or they can't. Much like I've tried to call my list of people I follow, because I wouldn't say I'm hate following, but I don't have good reactions when I see their stuff. We're we're not going to hate watch. We can live in the in-between where we acknowledge that these things are not great that they're saying. They're true. um, But I just don't love the person saying it, and I'm kind of tired of hearing from them. Okay. I'm just enough for some friends, and I'm too much for other people. I could talk too much for you. I might not say enough of worth or interest to you. But there are so many layers to people who have become almost mythical in our kind of parasocial relationship. I loved your mother. I signed her condolence book when it came to the state house, but I don't know you. And I didn't know her. You come from an institution that is more of a business than a family that is rightfully called classist, ancient, colonial, imperial, wrong. Um, It's important to examine that whether the institution is worth having, whether it's benefiting the public, whether it's benefiting the people inside it. Who's it serving besides the tabloids? Humans, even rich ones, are allowed to have safety and peace. It's kind of a right. And yet acting like all of that needs to be shoved down in service of uh, a monarchy, what, what is that really getting? And in a lot of ways, I hope those questions and examinations benefit the younger children of Prince William who are spares in their own right. Um, I want to see things change in a good way. I found ways as an outsider, you know, just watching this documentary to see where stories could be misconstrued. For instance, Megan said that she was not given princess training, a la Genovia, but it came out later. There was a royal dossier with 30 bullet points. Okay, uh, that could be literally 100 words. It sounds like a HR worksheet given to you on the first day of your internship. Perhaps she was looking for more mentor- mentorship, more guidance. She had, much like a first-generation college student, might not have an example of what it looks like to do this. She doesn't know about British aristocracy because she didn't grow up in it. People saying she knew exactly what to expect. How? I live in America, and I still... Don't think I could ever fully understand what it means to be first lady. Just because I've watched it doesn't mean I really understand. And even if I did, if I become pregnant, 
and have postpartum depression, if I'm dealing with suicidal ideations, if I change, even if I understand the landscape, maybe those things aren't safe or enjoyable or manageable anymore. The The idea that the, I mean, and a lot was leaked that actually, I'm kind of jumping ahead of my brain, but if you followed the story in early 2020 about the Sussexes potentially leaving the royal family, all of it felt like fiction to me. There's just no way. And yet so many of the leaks were accurate. It was stunning. The idea that they might be quote unquote exiled to Africa. The exile part was actually Harry's idea, not so much an exile, more of a relocation. Um, And that was true. For some reason, because it leaked, they couldn't do it. I, I can't really connect the dots on that. But many of the details about the so-called Sandringham Summit that took place after Meghan coincidentally left the United Kingdom and went back to Canada, Harry spelled out that he was given five options, you know, running the gamut from being all in, no change, to being all out. And he picked dabs back in the middle, half in, half out, you know, have our own jobs, also do work in support of the Queen. But, you know, suddenly his brother was yelling at him and it became clear that that was not really an option. I've read many people say that why would they believe that it had never happened before but both prince andrew and prince edward have done that um as very senior members of the royal family at the time in particular fergie and um sophie who's edward's wife had her own business actually have done that and they were getting uh, money from the the crown so it's confusing to me when there really has been a precedent i saw um isolated, lonely people getting help in the final episode from Tyler Perry, someone they had really never met in person, trying to get not just money, but the money required to have trained full-time around the clock, ready to protect you from legitimate death threats kind of security. Um, It's just my sympathy in that, especially as a mother, is just completely kicked into high gear. Just the idea that the people you thought you could count on weren't there, but a stranger is. I was touched seeing little things like them make the balloon arches for Archie's first birthday, make the cake, which in their case obviously is a lot less about, um, you know, saving the $400 from the balloon arch and a lot more about just being present parents. It's really easy to note that these are people who don't have to report to work, don't have to worry about health insurance, don't have to ask, you know, do I get maternity leave? Don't have to figure out where we're going to get the money to pay for things. I always found it so interesting that the more famous and wealthy you get, um, the more things are comped for you. Suddenly people are throwing country estate vacations at you and giving you access to their incredibly wonderful um, restaurants, concert experiences, homes. But I loved seeing a family that seems joyful and calm. Um, I was astounded by the lack of contact there seems to be between the royal family and Harry at this point. They didn't even know when he'd come to America because he believed that it would be leaked. And it seems rightfully so that the communications offices between essentially departments, and by that I mean royal figures, are all at war in a way that makes no sense. I've worked at agencies where there have, you know, been politics and competition, but these people are a family. And it seems that you would want to protect and um, defend the people within your family, especially when you see helicopters searching for your grandchild on his birthday in his beautiful California backyard, especially when you see the Daily Mail in a protracted lawsuit 
wanting access to all the texts and emails with the keywords, William, Kate, Archie, I love you, Africa, even though Archie hadn't been born at the time they were trying to subpoena this content. So I find it puzzling and a little disheartening. But again, this docuseries was their version of what they wanted to tell. I don't know if your parents have also done this, but over the years, it seems there are so many stories from my childhood, but maybe the same half dozen get told. You know them as soon as your parent starts. You know how the story ends. Um, We retell the pieces that inform how we view our past, even though we've lived it. I think Mary Lou Henner is one of the few people I've heard talk publicly about how she's someone who can't forget things. She has a particular kind of memory that you say a specific day from the 70s and she can tell you what day of the week it was, the weather, what she wore. That sounds incredible to me, but it also means you remember every insult. You remember every hurt, everything your brain has been designed to protect you from. The rest of us tell our story as best we can. I don't think just because you're a political person or a public person that you've given up your rights to privacy, especially like Archie, Lily, and Terry, you're born to something. You are interesting to the press simply because you exist. The male on Sunday who was in that protracted lawsuit with Harry and Meghan that they finally won, they they threw everything in on their defense. And their bottom line was that Meghan wasn't entitled to privacy because of whom she was dating including letters to her family. Whether she, as I do, acts as though everything she ever writes could be published on the front page of a paper, which I literally was describing to someone earlier this week that I do, because I want to feel good. I want to know that I mean what I say. And that if you examine it, there's really no room for misinterpretation. Of course, there's always room, but um, every email can be forwarded. Every text can be screenshotted. Snapchat isn't even what every 13-year-old thought it was. There's a record everywhere. Seeing Megan consulting with particularly female attorneys, understanding the pressure that she must have felt, um, never really knowing where they're safe or whom they can talk to. The docuseries opened my eyes in that way. I've seen a lot of people try to break down their body language, particularly Megan's. I was most moved by the vulnerability in her discussion of her concerns for safety about her children, the video of members of the press coming down the driveway, of of things that were, I kept saying, like, if this was in the South, someone someone would get out their shotgun. Like, someone's papa would be out there, like, you're going to want to take it and turn it around. Maybe I've just finally watched too much Yellowstone after years of putting it off, but you don't want to do that around here. And yet, and yet, folks did. Um, I wish that they had had the ability to maintain some of their non-royal patronages. Um, But I think that there is a lot of room for them to continue doing good work around their just causes that move them. Mental health, the environment, gender equity, knowing that you have the privilege not to worry about paying your mortgage, not to worry about if your kids are going to be able to afford to go to college. It doesn't mean you need to shut up and not whine about the painful things in your life. But it does mean that you have a grander scale to make a difference. And I hope they do. I hope that in the same way that we understand Kate Middleton has um, a slower work schedule because she's helping, she's raising three children. 
Megan and Harry are putting worthwhile effort, as many people, many millennials in particular, are into breaking generational patterns, things about ourselves we don't always examine, uh, the ways we communicate, the ways we view the world. That's worthwhile. And um, they're paying for themselves, which I think removes a lot of the discontent around what they've been up to and whether they're allowed to complain. I wished particularly at the end of the sixth episode, which revealed, um, you know, a lot of the distance between the family and the Sussexes. I wish that they had acknowledged their incredible privilege. I wished, especially this came out just before the holidays, and I could name half a dozen dear, lovely, wonderful friends brought to tears over the holidays by family dynamics, by loss, by financial struggles, by health struggles. Um, And we all do need to be grateful for the privileges we have. I have many, but I'm not someone with six-hour Netflix documentary. Um, I believe they said what they wanted to say. I wish there was a little more, excuse me, I just said excuse me to a microphone, a little more self-awareness and humility spelled out, whether they feel it in their heart or not, I I couldn't say, but uh, about the experience and the freedom they have to heal from it, to get away from something that wasn't good for them. Uh, They felt they took a beating. They felt this might eventually dissipate, that they could take that year off that we all thought, oh yeah, maybe they'll just recover, have like an extended leave, and they're not going to go back. Um, They're seeing the patterns they're seeing that there's not really a spot for them. Um, and I I wish them peace. I wish them clarity to know what comes next. I advise them to step a bit back. I advise them as though they're listening. But if they were my clients, it would be as Anne Hathaway did, as Taylor Swift did before, um, you know, around her reputation era, if you keep up with such things. Step back. Burnout is real in you, but it's also real with the press. It gets to a point where you're overexposed and people are rolling their eyes at everything you say, even if it's the truest, most genuine, um, just soundbite ever. The idea, as you know, Oprah, or maybe they said in the Oprah interview, that it was almost unsurvivable what they faced. Um, I think it didn't have to be. There were a lot of other ways it could have gone. I wish that in saying things like, this is our freedom flight, or, you know, I couldn't believe that now we had to like search for a house and see how we were going to, like, guys, you were always going to pay for it. Uh, Your freedom flight is wonderful. And I'm thankful that you were able to access the protection that you needed. But there, a little perspective would, would go a long way. There were moments of amusement when Beyonce texted and which Megan seems to be just as a, you know, stunned and delighted as the rest of us would be. Um, but I, I found it very humanizing to see the moments with Doria, to see how attached Harry is to her, how close that family is. Uh, it made me see that a lot of the press coverage assigning to Megan this personality of being completely conniving uh, is a bit of an overstatement. You would have to be so stinking smart, unrelenting, um, conniving, calculating, manipulative, in the same way that I shudder when I read stories about how Carol Middleton actually helped Kate change her college plans so she could try to pursue the future king. Could a girl make a decision uh, for her own reasons? Maybe. Maybe. Right? Um, I I noticed 
and couldn't. You, you can't help it. The family really does not talk. They are believing the headlines that you and I see as their primary source of information on both sides, which is a crying shame. Um, that's only going to create even more division between folks, um, especially around, you know, the death of the queen and the death of Philip. They're, they're losing folks. And Harry acknowledges having lost friends to this because of misinformation. Um, but it's, it's preventable. And that has hurt me as a person who wants, for instance, Archie and Lily to know their cousins, such an unusual institution and an unusual childhood and not, not something that anyone else could really relate to. I I loved images of Harry mowing his own lawn with like a push mower, um, of discussing what Spencer like bits he sees in his daughter, um, And I also understand the eye rolling that, especially in England, naming Tyler Perry as a a godfather might get. Um, I hope that all of this information, and especially, and I won't go into depth here, but the leaking, the text, and the misrepresentation of the royal family's role in awful tabloid headlines, and especially some of William's employees, communication team members, who lashed out at Harry with untruths, um, that's shedding a light on a really dark industry that is far worse in the United Kingdom than it is here. So I just, um, I don't know. There's something about seeing a heartbroken woman in front of an Hermes blanket, a point of contention on Twitter, who was relieved to learn that her lawsuit was over and that she was victorious. Um, it does ring a little strange, but it is still genuine emotion. Um, So a lot of conflicting opinions from me on this. I think the peace, they have said their word for 2022 was peace, uh, reclaiming a huge piece of themselves, finding peace, rebuilding relationships. And I wish that for them. I also wish peace, despite the fact that he disgusts me, to people like Jeremy Clarkson, who are gnashing teeth and probably typing with such rage that their keys are flying off about people who don't affect their individual lives besides perhaps contributing to their paycheck. Um, I just thought it was notable at the very end of the sixth episode that Harry said he came to California because he was changed, that he had outgrown his environment and that California was the most obvious place to come and a place where his mom could have ended up living potentially because what place would she have had, you know, in the UK otherwise that really, that stunned me. But Harry seems at ease. He, you know, Nacho, I believe, I believe his last name is Figueroa. He's a model you would absolutely recognize because he's been the head polo guy for Ralph Lauren for decades. Super gorgeous family, polo friend of Harry's, which, yes, I hear that, polo friend, said that Harry was always looking for a simpler life, a more human life, you know, two kids, two dogs, thinking about what's for dinner and what our schedule looks like tomorrow. And while I was struck by the lack of staff around them, um, you know, I would I would say that's a bit of a misrepresentation of their life. But perhaps to someone like Nacho and to someone like Harry, this is, you know, leave it to Beaver, Brady Bunch level family normacy, normalcy. Um, you know, Harry says, and I hope this is how he feels, that there have been times he's been angry, but he can't be that angry because he feels like he and his family are exactly where they're supposed to be. Many people have said that Megan changed Harry, but she said, really, he would not have been drawn to me 
if he wasn't already changed. And I find that to be very true. It's a full circle thing of this growth would have happened. It gets to happen with Megan instead of on his own. And, um, you know, the fairy tale love story stuff that makes me kind of, okay, the toast at the wedding and, and the things that seem a little try hard, for instance, calling him H, despite the fact that I call my own husband B, um, I'm willing to let go of because I love seeing people heal. These are people I hope step back, even though I've enjoyed hearing Harry read his book. These are people I hope step back and focus on the next step of their life, avoid overexposure, set great examples for their kids. And we'll discuss in the spare breakdown, this 400 pound, 400 page behemoth of a book. Um, we'll discuss what I think the road looks like, how I would feel if I were on the other side of the pond reading or hearing the book. But I do hope that whether they can come full circle and come back to the British royal family in a loving way, that they can continue to um, help these children that they've created, create a life really different from Harry's. And also with their work, help people who haven't had a shot at visiting. I mean, in the memoir so far, gosh, he's obviously served two tours in Afghanistan, but he's been in the North Pole. He's been in Antarctica. He's been in Saint-Tropez. He's been in Australia. I mean, when he said he hadn't been to Paris until he was 22 or something, I was floored. But you've been all over. Your children may still have that life, but I hope that they have um, a balanced, peaceful, safe life. And I hope that anyone who is bothered by that just stops consuming you know, you can choose to block, ignore, and mute all manner of keywords on social media. And I hope Harry and Megan also do the same, that sometimes people are not worth, just like we tell our elementary school children, they're not worth it. They're not worth your time. They're trying to get a rise out of you. You know who you are. That doesn't define you. So I might say that to me, but I also say that to them because certainly they're listening to this podcast as well. I'm not sure how much rambling I cut out. And in fact, I only shaved about 11 or 12 minutes off of yesterday's attempt. But again, in the next day, I will pop that full stream of consciousness breakdown onto Patreon. And if you thought, wow, how could I get looser and more rambly than this? Oh, babe, <laughs> I got some news for you. I will be back in the next week with an update on Spare. Um, I'm already writing in the book, the physical book. I don't know if you are someone who considers books sort of sacred as I do, like you hate to dog ear pages. But drawing brackets and underlining and putting little asterisks um, means I've really got stuff to say. And boy, do I. What is being covered is not at all what I would consider newsworthy, a through line or um, a telling narrative in the book. So buckle up, get ready, and maybe do some of the unpacking and the critical thinking that J School lends at the headlines that you read between now and then. In the meantime, have a lovely weekend. I say weekend because I only just learned that my children are out of school Friday and Monday. So we have a four-day weekend. I'm going to be trying to work and parent and um, also their windows coming in and things being demolished and things being added and dogs who don't particularly like it. So it's January, perhaps my least favorite month of the year because I miss the sun, but we are going to make it through and perhaps talking about people we'll never meet will help us through that. Y'all take good care and I'll see you right back here next week. You can always find me at But Not All At Once on all manner of social things and butnotallatonce.com. Thanks for being here, y'all. I miss you guys. I'll talk to you soon.